numbers that explain the economy. We love them at The Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to The Indicator podcast from NPR. This is 1A. I'm Jen White. Years ago, if you opened your kitchen drawer, you'd probably find a stack of takeout menus. There's a good chance one of those menus would have been for a Chinese restaurant. Despite the decline of paper takeout menus, Chinese food remains ubiquitous in the U.S. and around the world. And for some of you, it's a favorite. Chinese food has meant a lot to me. There was a particular restaurant in my area called the Bamboo House and. I've been going there since I was four or five, and I'm going to be 50 now. My daughter went there, and we loved kung pao chicken um, or shrimp. That was our favorite. I spent many years in New York City, and my favorite go-to Chinese food was cold sesame noodles. And all my friends went to the same Sichuan restaurant to get cold sesame noodles, and they were great. Thanks for sharing those messages. According to a 2023 Pew Research study, every U.S. state and 70% of all U.S. counties have at least one Chinese restaurant. After the break, we explore how Chinese food has grown in popularity outside of China and why it's so beloved and misunderstood. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back in just a moment. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Joining me now is Fuchsia Dunlop. She's the author of several books about Chinese cuisine. Her latest is called Invitation to a Banquet, the Story of Chinese Food. Fuchsia, welcome to the program. Hello, great to be here. Also with us is Kevin Pang. He's the co-author of A Very Chinese Cookbook. He also hosts the Chinese cooking series Hunger Pangs, along with his father, Jeffrey, for America's Test Kitchen. Kevin, it's great to have you. Hi, Jen. We miss you here in Chicago. Oh, I miss Chicago, too. Okay, I want to start with a basic but a big question. What is Chinese food and what sets it apart from other cuisines? Kevin, I'll come to you first. When I when I grew up and when I was a wee lad, I used to think Chinese food was uh, the food that I grew up with, which was Cantonese-style food. It was radish cake, and it was 
uh, this dish called Portuguese chicken. It was wontons. And for some reason, my friends, you know, I grew up in Seattle, the Chinese food that they had was completely foreign to me. They had dishes like egg foo young and crab rangoon and uh, General So's chicken. And these were dishes that I didn't have growing up. And so I, I had a lot of confusion about what Chinese food was growing up. And then it wasn't until years later when I became a food writer and also, uh, you know, when I started reading uh, uh, Fuchsia's books that I realized that Chinese food, number one, is not a monolith. It is, uh, gastronomically speaking, China is more a continent than it is a country. And the food that I grew up in Hong Kong would be unrecognizable to the food of someone growing up in Beijing or Sichuan or Shanghai or even in uh, Chicago or Detroit or in Peru. So, uh, you know, it is a – to me, Chinese food is a big tent genre. It can be many things to many people and uh, it's – you know, that realization came uh, only recently for me. Mm, Fuchsia, what about for you? How would you describe Chinese food? Well, I agree with Kevin. It's so diverse that it's quite hard to pin down because there are so many different regional cuisines. But you can draw out some really distinctive common threads. And one of them is that the art of cutting is fundamental to Chinese food. And for at least 2,000 years, the Chinese have been cutting their food into small pieces and eating it with chopsticks. And that's something that you notice in all kinds of Chinese dishes. And it really sets them apart from the Western approach of often having a whole piece of meat or a whole roast chicken chicken served at the table. Um, also, there are some seasonings that are really Chinese and that you, you know, before quite recent times, you didn't find in other parts of the world, like fermented soybeans, all those kind of rich, savory umami tastes from fermented beans, you know, and in the West, in Europe, in America, we fermented everything else. We made bread and beer and cheese and so on, but we didn't ferment beans. And then there are certain cooking methods that you find in many parts of China, like stir-frying in a wok, very distinctively Chinese, but also steaming. You know, people often forget that steaming is the really ancient Chinese cooking method. They've been making steamers out of pottery since the Stone Age. Mm. They found Neolithic steamers at archaeological sites in China. So those are just a few of the really notable characteristics of Chinese food, I think. Well, the Chinese food in America is very different from the Chinese food in China. Fuchsia, how did Chinese food make its way to the U.S.? Well, so American Chinese food was really created by immigrants from one particular part of China, the Cantonese South. And they came, you know, during the gold rush, they built the railroads, um, and many of them ended up in the catering industry. And they were cooking um, often quite in quite isolated in non-Chinese communities. Um, and they were cooking for Westerners whose tastes at the time were much more conservative than they are now with limited resources. And they came up with this formula that was inexpensive, easy to make, and really appealing to Western tastes. And you get all those lovely fried foods, sweet and sour dishes, mm. and so on. But it was always quite far removed from what Chinese people were eating themselves. I mean, certainly in China, and even the people running your, you know, your American Chinese takeouts, the other side of the counter, were eating very different Chinese food. So American Chinese was a, a, something created specifically, you know, starting from the 19th century for Western tastes. Well, let's go to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Justin. My favorite dish would have to be something called Jung Sik Ngao Lao. So that's Cantonese. Um, I first distinctly remember having, having this dish when I was a kid, maybe around 
seven or eight years old, and this was in Chinatown in Houston, Texas. Um, and as an American-born Chinese, it was kind of the thing that introduced me into Chinese food and then subsequently realizing that there's a lot more to the different types of food. I've been lucky enough to go to China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan uh, as an adult and just realizing that what I see here on the menus is nothing compared to what they have in China. It's just that everything here has been Americanized and that if you want the truly authentic experience, you have to go overseas. Justin, thanks for that message. Kevin, you were born in Hong Kong, but you grew up in Seattle. So you're familiar with both Chinese-American food and traditional Chinese food. To you, what's the biggest difference between the two? When I first saw um, orange chicken for the first time, (laughs) right, I I found it to be just like incredible. You know, the the colors were just astounding. You know, the uh, almost the it was like this iridescent glow to it. And also I found that Chinese American food, you know, to to Fuchsia's point, it was created for uh, folks who had a very different palate from mine. You know, certainly my family, we did not eat anything that was like too overly sweet. And I found that a lot of the foods were, you know, it was very saucy. The texture uh, was also you know, it was sauced in a way that was, uh, you know, some might describe as gloopy. Mm. But, you know, to me, I found that Chinese American food, you know, compared to the food that I grew up with, the Cantonese food, it was almost, it was turned up the dial to to 11. Everything just seemed to be a lot more crunchier, a little bit sweeter, you know, a little bit more oversauced. And, uh, you know, uh, like I said, for many years, I turned my back to that. And I think there were a few years when my parents would look at this style of food and say, well, this is not authentic. And, you know, it wasn't, again, until later, probably until college, that I had my first orange chicken, and it was specifically at Panda Express. <laughs> I was like 21 <laughs> in, in college. And I had this, and it was the first time that I thought, you know what, this is not in competition with the Chinese food I grew up with. This is just as delicious. And now I've got a seven-year-old kid, and his favorite food is orange chicken from Panda Express. And, uh, you know, I am. Uh, there's no shame in saying that uh, that stuff is really, really delicious, too. Fuchsia, you grew up on Chinese takeout in the U.K. What early memories do you have of eating this food? Well, it was a special treat for my family, and my parents would occasionally bring home a takeout. And we had sort of chow mein, chop suey, but our favorite dish was sweet and sour pork balls, which is a really British Chinese thing. So we'd have a nugget of pork that was dipped in a really lovely batter and fried until golden and served with a bright red sweet and sour sauce. And that was my favorite. We're heading to a quick break, but coming up, Kevin walks us through how Chinese cooking bridged the gap between him and his father. Back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. 
Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward? And what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. Let's get back to the conversation. Uh, For years, Jeffrey Pang had a YouTube channel teaching people how to cook Chinese food. Now he and his son Kevin make cooking videos together. We have breaking news for you. Mongolian beef is not from Mongolia. In fact, we never had this growing up in Hong Kong, right? Yes, of course, because that is American Chinese food. It's American Chinese food. And in fact, there's a lot of these dishes that are new to us. We never really had crab rangoon or chop suey growing up. But the thing is, we've learned to love and appreciate American Chinese food. And Mongolian beef is one of our favorites. It's got everything that we love. We've got crispy beef. We've got the garlic and the ginger. And you love scallions. Yes. Yeah. Scallion. I love scallion more than the beef. You like scallion more than beef. Kevin, in 2016, you wrote a piece in the New York Times called My Father, the YouTube Star. Back then, his channel already had almost a million views. What was your reaction when you first watched your father's cooking videos? I was completely taken aback and shocked. Um, you know, the the backstory is that my, my dad had forwarded me an email one day to, and it said, Jeffrey Pang has sent you a YouTube video. And of course, I deleted it because when your father sends you a forward with a YouTube link, you think it's probably some sort of conspiracy theory. And so I just did not watch it. And it wasn't until several weeks later that my mom said, hey, Kevin, have you seen this video? It's kind of blowing up. And I clicked on it and it was uh, this, I saw my picture of my mom and I saw my grandma and they were making uh, Shanghainese scallion pancakes and it was this recipe that we've had for many, many years. And it turns out that my dad was making these very low-fi, low-budget YouTube cooking videos and by that time it had something like 40, 50,000 views already, which is very hard back in 2012. And, um, you know, and the fact that I was working in digital media and he was producing at a cadence that was way more than what I was trying to make on video. And, you know, now he's got over something like two and a half million views on his YouTube channel. And, uh, you know, again, I was pretty, pretty amazed and pretty shocked that he was doing this. But then he would later told me, he later told me why he did this. And he said that, well, you know, Kevin, you are not very communicative. And, uh, I know that, um, you're going to, you're going to miss these recipes, uh, uh, you know, when we're gone. And so we want to make sure that we have these recipes for you uh, so that one day when your mom and dad aren't here, uh, you'll be able to cook these. And so it was a very uh, sweet reason why they decided to make these videos. So he was really doing this for an audience of one. Yeah, kind of. And, and you know, and really there's now an audience of of millions, but he was really making it for my sister and I. You know, I, I think this all stems from the fact that I grew up, you know, I, I came to America when I was 11 years old. And so uh, I desperately try to fit in 
as an American, uh, you know, when you have kids who are excluding you at school or they're looking at your lunch and saying, why does it look like that? Why does it smell like that? You do everything that you can to try to fit into the American culture. And then meanwhile, at home, my parents were very, you know, proudly, stoically, uh, conservatively Chinese. And they really wanted us to, you know, maintain that tradition. They wanted us to speak Chinese at home. And uh, when you have those two cultures living under the same roof, it can become really combustible. And so that really was the reason that it led to many years of acrimony and there was a lot of arguments and fighting fighting at home. And, uh, you know, I'm not the only immigrant who's had that experience, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in going through this book tour. A lot of uh, folks have told me that uh, they've had the exact same experience, uh, you know, live as, a, as an immigrant and trying to fit into – America and having these arguments with their parents about this and later finding out that food was the lingua franca that they were able to speak with and converse with their parents and relatives. And it really became this bridge uh, to be able to start communicating with them again. And it was through this idea of food. If you share someone who who researches food, what do you think about it as as its own language and a way to create bridges between family members and people from other cultures? Well, I mean, I think, you know, many of our first experiences of of cultures that are foreign to us is through food. And certainly with Chinese food in China, I think it's the best way into understanding China because food has been central to Chinese culture and civilization really since the beginning. It's so important, not just as it is anywhere for bringing friends and family together, but in China, you know, the great rituals of the state were about offering food to gods and ancestors. Food is seen as the absolute basis of good health and people talk about food all the time in China. So I think it's a fantastic way for building bridges. Why do you think other cuisines, I'm thinking, for instance, like French cuisine, receive more respect in the culinary world? Well, I think it's for historical reasons. I mean, I think that Chinese cuisine, you know, as it's understood in the West, has been fantastically successful. As you said, it's ubiquitous. Everyone loves eating it. But it's got stuck in this kind of of middle-of-the-road neighborhood takeout bracket. And people don't realize that Chinese food has everything. I mean, China is vast. It has everything from really inexpensive street food to the most labor-intensive, extravagant um, and glorious banquet cooking. And so you have this strange scenario where people are willing to pay a lot of money for, you know, Japanese sushi or European tasting menus, but they don't see Chinese food as being in that really high-end bracket. And yet it is. And the Chinese practically invented, you know, high-end gastronomy and have been, you know, writing beautiful poetry about food for more than 2,000 years. It's a really sophisticated culinary culture. If you show you were the first Westerner to ever study at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine, what did you learn there? Oh, so much. I mean, the first thing that was so overwhelming was how healthy Chinese food was and also 56 different cooking methods. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that this was a cuisine in which food was treated thoughtfully and that it was a real craft. And also just to learn about one regional cuisine, and that's one province in China, which has dozens of provinces. Um, Yes, so it was a whole new world, and it was so incredibly different from the Chinese food that I'd known growing up in Britain. Let's go back to our inbox. Here's a message we got from Michelle. 
Growing up as an American Chinese, we enjoyed a lot of tea eggs, Shanghai pork chop, chicken and bell peppers, choo-choo train, fried rice, chestnut chicken, curry chicken, scallion pancakes, anything Joyce Chen. And I continue to cook these meals for, for my family as we go along. Michelle, thanks for that message. Joyce Chen was a Chinese-American chef, restaurateur, and TV personality, and her first cooking show aired in 1967. Kevin, let's get into some specific dishes. You want to talk about Portuguese chicken. Tell us about it. Oh, man. Portuguese chicken, for me, it is comfort food through and through. I think it is the mac and cheese of uh, Hong Kong parents, right? (laughs) And when I included this dish in this book, you know, people were thinking, why is there a dish called Portuguese chicken in a Chinese cookbook? Well, you know, the, uh, the in, growing up in Hong Kong, 45 minutes west of Hong Kong by ferry is Macau. And of course, Macau was for many years a Portuguese colony. And uh, there's an interesting, to me, Portuguese chicken was really the first fusion dish that I was exposed with. Uh, you know, the the Portuguese, they brought with them to Macau uh, things like potatoes and coconut milk and curry powder. And what you get in Macau and in Chinese, it's called pogokai. And it's this uh, baked chicken, uh, usually dark chicken meat, uh, chicken thighs. And it is in this very creamy, viscous, uh, curried coconut milk sauce that would be uh, you know, baked that you would serve over rice, you would spoon all over it. And, uh, you know, to me, it is it is true fusion food. And once again, I think it illustrates the idea that Chinese food, whatever you have uh, in your mind about Chinese food, it really is way more than what you think. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's much more varied and much more diverse than you would think. But, uh, you know, uh, Portuguese chicken is something that I would eat every single Tuesday night. My my mom would uh, bake in this big casserole dish and I would just spoon it up with rice. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm salivating just thinking about I it I know, right it's now, <laughs> Sounds really good. Fuchsia, you you wanted to share your thoughts about braised pomelo citrus fruit shrimp. Tell us about this dish. Oh, So it's braised pomelo pith with dried shrimp eggs. And this is a classic traditional Cantonese dish. You know, pomelo is that giant citrus fruit. And the pith is just this kind of white cottony layer between the skin and the actual fruit. Most people would just throw it in the bin. Because it's very bitter. Yeah, it's bitter. It's pretty, I mean, it's just very boring with a very cottony texture. (laughs) And yet Cantonese chefs have developed this method of soaking it repeatedly, rinsing it, getting rid of that bitterness, and then cooking it in a really luxurious broth made from chicken and pork and um, and toasted fish, um, giving it this amazing flavor. And when it's served, you get these domes of something delicious and mashy in a glorious sauce scattered with dry shrimp eggs is one of my favorite dishes for me it's an expression of the creativity and the imagination of Chinese cooking you take something so unlikely and with your culinary craft you make it into a delicious dish we're going to take a quick break here but we'll be back with more of the conversation in just a moment this message comes from Wondery for a masterclass on innovation and creativity, listen to How I Built This, where host Guy Raz talks to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. Listen to How I Built This early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. 
Now back to the history and influence of Chinese food. Fuchsia, your latest book is called Invitation to a Banquet. What role do banquets play in the tradition of Chinese cuisine? Well, a banquet is for you know a special occasion for family occasions like weddings, um, and also for business dinners, and um, and that's where you know you you see many different dishes, great variety, and people often showing off to impress influential business contacts and so on. When I went to China some years ago, I was a. St- Astounded by the food, it was just. I, I had the best lamb chops of my life. They are very thinly sliced, crispy, coated in some mixture of spices. I I don't know exactly what was in it, but I was struck, Kevin, not just by the range of of flavors, but also the range of textures and the way the chefs played with with temperature in in the different foods. And so I, I'm curious, as your father. And you wrote this new cookbook, a very Chinese cookbook together with so much ground to cover. How did you tackle that process of collaboration? We decided early on that writing a book that was comprehensive was just impossible unless you wanted to lug around a 4,000-page Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, it's just impossible. So we really focused on uh, the the cooking that we're most familiar with, which uh, – uh, which was the food of of Hong Kong, the Cantonese cooking. Of course, there's so many different techniques, and there are so many different methods. You know, we could we only know that we could focus on you know a very small sliver of it, and so uh, uh, you know, like I said, I think just focusing on the food that we grew up with, and uh, also choosing the foods that that I think there was some familiarity with. With our audience, and you know, with America's Test Kitchen, we've been developing recipes for over thirty years. And you know, one of the things that we do very differently from other uh, companies is that we have this very rigorous process of testing recipes over and over and over and over again. On average, every one of our dishes costs about eleven thousand dollars just to develop, mm-hmm. just to get that right. And so, uh, you know, we chose a lot of dishes that were familiar to folks, like the Jen Rosso's chicken and maybe Mongolian beef. Uh, but also, we wanted to pick dishes that we had some special, uh, you know, affinity to. So, like I said, Portuguese chicken. This was the dish I grew up eating, and also things like Xiaolongbao, which is the Shanghainese soup dumpling, which is notoriously hard to pull off. Uh, we wanted to include those as well. So. I think really to answer your question, Jen, we wanted to, we knew that we weren't able to cover everything. And so we just decided to pick our favorite dishes. Fuchsia, when you're tackling a topic as vast and diverse as Chinese food, how do you break it down into pieces? (laughs) Sorry for the pun, pieces you can digest. (laughs) Wow, good question. Yeah, well, I've been thinking about Chinese food for about 30 years now. And to try and condense a whole lot of arguments into one bit was difficult. And I've decided to do it in the form of a kind of banquet of dishes. So every chapter in the book is centered around one particular Chinese dish, not necessarily the most famous or the greatest hits, but a dish that I felt showed something really profound about Chinese culinary culture. So there's one chapter that's about a bitter melon and pork rib soup. And that's all about, you know, how the Chinese see food as medicine and are so concerned with health. And there's another dish um, which is about used to talk about the art of cutting and also kind of philosophical aspects of Chinese food, like, you know, why the Chinese have this very ancient tradition of vegetarian cooking and its connection with Buddhism. So a menu of dishes to try and show definitely not everything, but some very important aspects about Chinese food culture. 
I mean, Kevin, most of us don't think about the food we're served as children nor the cultural meaning behind it until we're much older. How has your relationship to Chinese food evolved as you've become an adult? Greatly. For many, many years, I think perhaps the rebellious nature in me, the, you know, the, the, the teenager that I was, I had Chinese food a lot and I just wanted to turn away from that. I wanted to explore food that was not my own. But then it wasn't until I left for school and went to college away uh, that I started missing, you know what, the food that my parents made were actually quite good. And so I think uh, distance certainly makes the heart grow fond. And, uh, you know, I think that was really the the impetus that really made me look at Chinese food anew again is, you know what, the food that my parents made for me was actually quite good. And uh, I really started missing that. And then it wasn't until I became a food writer at the Chicago Tribune, I did that for many years, that I actually started to, um, you know, gave me a reason to talk to my parents beyond the cursory, hey, how you doing? What are you doing this weekend? We would have these very like light two-minute conversations on the phone. But then I became a food writer and I needed to understand about Chinese cooking and about techniques and hearing their stories. And that was the moment that I started having these long, hour-long conversations with my parents. And it was really the first time that they were able to, uh, I was able to engage with them in something that was really uh, a, a meaningful conversation. And to hear them almost poetically describe how uh, a shumai filling, you know, the, the wrapper should, uh, I remember my parent, my dad saying that it should caress the filling like, uh, you know, the petals of a flower or the, uh, uh, the prongs on a diamond ring. I mean, he was describing it in such beautiful prose that it really made me look at Chinese food, not just as something that I ate, but something with richness and texture and history And, uh, you know, I think becoming a food writer really uh, made me appreciate Chinese food on a whole new level. Well, Kevin, I wonder, as you were working on the cookbook and having these more expansive conversations with your father, what more you learned about him and his upbringing? Working on this cookbook really forced me, and I I use the word forced in quotation (laughs) uh, marks, it forced me to have these conversations that I would otherwise never have with my dad. And I remember, you know, over the last year, I would be on these Zoom calls with them, with him, and I would ask him for the first time in my life, tell me about your background. Tell me about your history. What were you like growing up? And these were subjects that I would never uh, even broach with my parents because, you know, like, it, it would just be very strange, I feel, for me to say, hey, dad, tell me about when you were five years old. But then working on this cookbook, I did ask him that very question. And he would tell me that when he was five and he was living in Hong Kong, and this was back at a time when there was no television, they didn't even own a radio, you know, they were quite poor, they didn't have a refrigerator. So he and my grandmother, his mother, would visit the wet market twice a day. And how my grandmother would tell this five-year-old kid how to shop for fish. You should look under the gills. You should make sure the eyes are nice and shiny. You should look for uh, a, a very firm eggplants that had some, you know, bounce uh, and, you know, tactile. you should feel a certain way. And, you know, I've got a seven-year-old now, but, you know, to really picture my father, not as a father figure, but as someone who was once a child, someone who had hopes and dreams and wants, and to picture him, my father, as my, 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 my now son's age was really, you know, I've never seen him in that light before. And I think that was probably one of the most um, enlightening things about working on this book is, you know, not, not only did I learn a lot about Chinese food, but I finally saw my parents as human beings and not just parental figures. 
In Fuchsia, you make the argument that Chinese cuisine is is the best. <laughs> Why do you think it's better than other cuisines? Well, it's just so comprehensive. You know, we touched a bit on the regional diversity, but China has everything from Siberian forest to tropical rainforest, deserts and grasslands, and so much produce coupled with this real national obsession with food, which leads people to think of new and inventive and wonderful ways of eating. So the diversity and deliciousness of Chinese food is really, for me, unparalleled. But more than that, it's a cuisine which totally values health. And so Chinese food is, good Chinese food is always not just about pleasure, but all about balance, but also about balance and health. So I think with Chinese food, the great thing for me is that you can have your cake and eat it. You can have absolute deliciousness and feel good too. It's real feel good cooking. Fuchsia, you're planning your dinner. What's on that plate? Almost always include gongbao chicken Chengdu style because it's just unfailingly delicious. And Kevin, for you? High 90s chicken rice, it's the food that I would, on my deathbed, I would have that dish. <laughs> <laughs> That's Kevin Pang. He's the co-author of A Very Chinese Cookbook. He also hosts the Chinese cooking series Hunger Pangs alongside his dad, Jeffrey, for America's Test Kitchen. Also with us, Fuchsia Dunlop, the author of several books on Chinese cuisine. Her latest one is called Invitation to a Banquet, the Story of Chinese Food. Fuchsia, Kevin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk more soon. Former President Trump is in serious legal trouble. And at the same time, he wants his old job back. It's a really big story. But with different trials in multiple states, with plea deals, testimony, gag orders, it's also really hard to follow. So we created Trump's Trials, a new NPR podcast where we break down the big news from each case and talk about what it means for democracy in weekly episodes. I'm Scott Detrow. Check out Trump's Trials from NPR. The news can feel incredibly overwhelming. For a breath of much-needed fresh air, head to NPR.org's culture section. From the buzzy movies, tiny desk, and artists that everyone seems to know about, type in NPR.org for the latest and greatest in the pop culture universe. News is a public service. That's why NPR never puts a paywall in front of our journalism. NPR.org, our free website, promises to stay that way so that you get all of it. Breaking news, pop culture, award-winning journalism, wherever you are. To stay connected, head to NPR.org. NPR.org.